Welcome to Value Investing, the Starvine Way, where my goal is to help you learn more about value investing and compounding wealth with a long-term focus. We will accomplish this by sharing a mix of monologues and conversations. I'm your host, Stephen Coe, founder of Starvine Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as investment advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek advice that reflects their personal financial situation. In this episode, we speak with Dr. George Athanasakos, who is a pioneer in bringing value investing into the university curriculum. George is a finance professor and holds the Ben Graham Chair in Value Investing at the Richard Ivey School of Business, University of Western Ontario. He was also the founder and managing director of the Ben Graham Center for Value Investing, which he launched in 2006, and the founder and managing director of the Center for the Advancement of Value Investing Education, which he launched in 2008. Dr. Athanasakos has been ranked among the top 10 researchers in Canada by research published in Financial Management and among the top 10 Canadian professors by the Globe and Mail. I had the privilege of speaking with George about a number of topics, including the state of value investing today and his upcoming book, which, by the way, I'm excited to read. It is titled Value Investing from Theory to Practice, a Guide to the Value Investing Process. So maybe you could just give us a little bit about your background and your path, for instance, you know, how you became interested in academia, finance, investing, and value investing. I was almost a good student. You know, I was really very disciplined, diligent student. And always had an interest in academia. About finance, I think maybe I was born like with a, the finance kind of DNA because my grandparent was a, a successful merchant. I mean, I, growing up, you know, growing up, I I remember I was always attracted to numbers, to financial analysis. I always helped my family because they were not really interested or knowledgeable about financing. So I always helped them with real estate brokers, with uh, banks. And I think, you know, without knowing it, I was a value investor. I mean, I I look back in my life now that I know what value investing is, and I remember I exhibit characteristics of value investors. I was contrarian. I never succumbed to peer pressure. I was a disciplined patient, and oh, maybe I was lucky. I was born like this, and then naturally I fell into economics because. At the time, economics was a hot in, in around the world, and in Greece in particular. So I went to economics, I got a degree in economics in Greece, and then I came to Canada to do a graduate degree in economics, which I did. And I wasn't very happy because I thought it was too theoretical. I didn't see, I guess, the applicability of a lot of the stuff they were doing. So I decided to go and do an MBA. And I did the MBA, and I loved it. I mean, I just felt natural into the finance and investments uh, teachings at the university. I finished my MBA, I went back to Greece. I worked as an analyst at the head office of one of the biggest banks in Greece. I worked for a little bit. I got married. I and my wife decided that maybe it would be better to come back to Canada because there were more, more growth opportunities in Canada for us. So we did come back to Canada. I started working as an economist for a major trust company. I became the manager of the economics department. I started to invest actually in actual stocks. And again, when I invested, I invested a lot of my time in doing in-depth analysis, financial analysis, and I invested with contrarianism, with patience. But again, I didn't, I didn't know anything about value investing. Then after five or six years, I thought I learned everything I could when I was. And because I was always attracted in, into academia, I decided to go back to the university and do a PhD. 
And at the university, no one actually is trained like, like a value investor. There's no really program or courses in value investing. As you probably understand, academia pushes, I guess, modern portfolio theory and market efficiency. And these things are like what value investors believe. Still, I mean, as an academic, I didn't know anything about value investing because my training was not in value investing. And in fact, in, if in academia you advocate value investing, it's kind of dangerous for your career because everybody believes market efficiency. You'll be looked upon as a heretic. Now, I never believed, even at academia, I never believed market was efficient, but I couldn't really be very forceful about this because it would be not good for my tenure. So anyway, I did a lot of research that actually was supporting marketing efficiency, but we refer to them as anomalies. Yes, we believe much are efficient, but there's some anomalous things that are happening that I don't know why. So I managed to get tenure. I moved up the ranks of professorships. I became full professor. And then right about when I became full professor, something big happened in my life. I met Prem Watts. <laughs> and, and Prem made me understand value investing. So Prem gave a lot of money to the university to find an academic who could teach value investing. Of course, there were no really, as I said, academics are not trained in value investing, so it's very difficult to find people so, who can teach value investing in academia. But the university took a lot of professors to him to see how he liked them and so on. And from all the people he looked at, he seemed to like me more than anybody else. And when a number of meetings with Prem, he asked to see, because I, at the time he had, I had written an, a book on equity valuation, which more like academic book. But even though it was academic, I did a lot of fundamental analysis in the book. So he asked to see the book and he liked what I was doing in the book. We met again and started talking about market efficiency and what drives the markets and so on. And he seems he liked what I was saying. With another meeting, talking about risk management and about betas. And as you probably know, value investors don't like betas. And he liked what I talked about, what I was, I was talking about. And I think he also liked the fact that I was... My temperament was more like a value investor. And the last time we met, he came into, my, in, into the boardroom and he came up to me and gave me a big hug and he says to me, you know, George, where have you been? <laughs> I've been looking for you for years. So we sat down and he says to me, George, I know you've done a book on equity valuation, but can you take what you did in that book and make it value investing? Can you develop an academic program in value investing? Because unless somebody develops an academic value investing course, Value investing will never get, get a reputation as an academic kind of subject and be respected at the university level. So I said to him, look, I'll try. So I spent about a year talking to value investors. I met with legendary value investors. Like I met with uh, Erwin Kahn, I met with Walter Schloss, William Brown, and many others. And what I realized was that what they were saying and reading between the lines he made to me a lot of academic sense. I mean, all of them were, more, most of them are self-trained and work with intuition, with experience. But that, what they were saying in a very descriptive way, to me, I realized this guy's a lot of meat in there. So I studied very carefully and tried to read between the lines. And eventually, I end up with an approach which starts from the academic environment and shows how what we do in academia converges into what value investors do, subject to some significant assumptions, which to me are more realistic than one what they assume in academia. And this is what I teach my students, and this is what my book is all about, how to show the convergence between academic and value investing. 
And another thing I make sure what I do is very important and difficult to replicate is that I combine knowledge from many business areas. And also, this is what makes value investor successful. It's a combination, not only of finance. I mean, finance is a small part of what we do and what I do in the book and what I teach. A lot of accounting, a lot of strategy, a lot of economics, a lot of human psychology. So what I do basically is like a, a small and mini business degree because I take all the various independent pillars that someone learns at the university and I show them how they all come together to produce value investing, the value investing approach. And this is not easy. It's not done easily because academics teach only to understand one subject. So finance people don't understand accounting, accounting doesn't understand finance, and both of them don't understand strategy. And it's a very one dimension kind of thinking. But as an investor, you got to have a multi-dimensional thinking. And this is what I do in my classes, what I, how I built value investing, and this is what I do in my book. So I developed, I think I developed a very rigorous academic program in value investing at Ivy. You know, I brought value investing and stock picking to academia. And this is big because academics, as you know, have paid little attention to stock picking over the years. But I am a firm believer in stock picking. I think stock picking with the right process and the right temperament works. I can tell you that I really enjoyed your course. That I, This was 13 years ago, but when selecting MBA schools, Ivy already had a great reputation. Your program perhaps tipped the scales in terms of choosing between schools. So I'm really excited to read this book, which sounds like it incorporates elements of that course that I went through, and I'm sure it's evolved a lot since then. And I believe this is probably the only book of its kind that will be out there. Is that correct? I don't have any other academic books of the same ilk. No, I mean, you're right. It is the first ever academic book in value investing. It's almost 500 pages, and I cover in there, like I said, I cover in there finance, a lot more accounting, strategy, economic theory, psychology. And I want to make it respectful to academia. And that's why I'm very careful to showing what we do in academia converge in the value investing approach. And I hope the book encourages universities to start teaching value investing. Because without a book, without an academic book, it's very hard for young faculty to teach value investing. They don't know. I mean, they, they're not trained, so they don't know what to do. Whereas my book will give them a roadmap of how to teach it. And also the book has also a web-based model. So people go on the link, they go to a web page, they download a valuation model that I follow. And then next to it, there are two other files where I go and show how this model applies to two actual companies. And I show people, yeah, here's the book, the theory, here's how you apply another theory to application. Here are two companies that I valued using my book's principles, step-by-step, and here is the model that I used to value these two companies. So people will make a lot of money out of this book, okay? I mean, young people in their 20s, they have 40, 50 years to make a lot of money out of this book. You've got me excited. Now, what also sounds interesting is it sounds like there is a behavioral or it covers the behavioral aspects of investing as well. Is there a section on that? The first chapter is about human nature and the problems and the pitfalls and the weaknesses of human nature and how to, I mean, like I said, some people were born with the right character, but most of us were not. So how do we develop the character? And I have a number of checklist to train yourself to overcome your human weaknesses and become like a value investor. 
I'm sure even very experienced portfolio managers will be able to benefit from it because just studying notable investors, even value investors' mistakes, it would seem a lot of them are based on this behavioral aspect. I've also heard you mention in the past that value investing is a healthy mindset related to lifestyle. And maybe there's a perception out there that value investors are frugal. But other than that, how do you see the philosophy resonating with people in terms of promoting a good way of life? What makes good investors? You can value stocks and you can screen stocks. But what differentiates the best from the others is your character, your temperament. Value investing is more than investing. Value investing is about a lifestyle. Your patience, discipline, long-term focus are traits that define your personality. And these traits help you not only succeed as an investor, but help you also succeed in life. When you have a long-term perspective, the short-term ups and downs of the market does not affect you. This allows you to live a more balanced life. And a more balanced life leads to better life and longer life. When you are self-discipline is very important. Normally, self-discipline and intelligence go together. But self-discipline is more important than intelligence in success. People have difficulty making choices that allow them to sacrifice short-term pleasure for long-term gain. Also, patience. Patience helps you avoid impulsive decisions. That's one problem with investors. They make impulsive decisions rather than step back and think more carefully and more in-depth. So all this together, I guess, help you succeed not only in investing, but also in life and help you live actually a long life. I think that's a definitely a very good sell for value investing. And personally, as I invest other people's money, you go through a lot of ups and downs in the market. So I think what you said is exactly true. There almost has to be a concerted effort in self-moderation at all times mm-hmm. and kind of this awareness. Or as, as you said, you can wear yourself down. You know, the other thing is, it's very important in my mind. It's very important. And this consumes a lot of my thinking. is how to teach people from young age to think as value investors. As you may know, I have opened a center in Greece. I'm in discussions to opening something in, in India as well. I want to teach young people the characters of value investing because it will help them in life and also will help society. Young people have a natural inclination about the short term. I want to teach them about the long, the long term. Uh, they lack discipline. They want to make quick and impulsive decisions. And if they improve on this ground, they make their life better and make everybody's life better. And I think through my standards, I want to work using value investing. I want to work on people's character. And character is very important. And, and, and a Greek philosopher, Heraclitus, Heraclitus, he said that character is destiny. But the character determines what you're going to do in your life. And I always tell people, get a job that is consistent with your character because this will make you happy, will make you tap dance to work, as Buffett says. You will never want to retire, basically, and and you will live a happy life and a long life. My work consumes most of my life, but my mission is to make everybody think as a value investor and to have universities teach value investing, because universities tend to focus more on quantitative, on formulas, on spreadsheets. And for me, it's more important the qualitative than the quantitative. I tell my students, don't show me any quantitative spreadsheets, formulas, unless you convince me the qualitative aspect of your thinking. And then I'm going to look at the quantitative, not the other way around. But unfortunately, universities show the quantitative because before the qualitative. 
maybe this dovetails well into the next section. So I've read your recent Globe and Mail column on November 17. It was called Value Stocks Are Finally Getting the Revenge. Here's why their outperformance will continue. In it, you made some very interesting points. One being that there is a misconception that value investors mostly just sort high PE stocks from low PE stocks or high price to book value from low price to book value. And I definitely find that to be true in that many associate value with fixating only on quantitative cheapness. But then you point out to a general confusion over a secular versus cyclical decline for value. Or in other words, suggest that value isn't dead, but rather it goes through natural ebbs and flows. Maybe the same can be said of any trend that goes on long enough and that people extrapolate. Can you share what gives you confidence in the conviction that value is not in secular decline? First of all, there's a misconception out there about what value investing is. Everybody thinks, and academics also the same thing, I think, that value investing is always about picking low PE stocks. I mean, it's true that value investors invest from the low PE group, but they don't invest in all low PE stocks because low PE stocks, stocks have a low PE because they're simply bad stocks. Everybody's looking at the first step of the value investing process. But value investors screen stocks for low PE just to bring down the sample of stocks that they will move to the second step, which is fundamental analysis valuation. I cannot value a thousand stocks, but when I bring down through screens stocks, and I end up with stocks with certain characteristics that I like, like low PE, small cap, then these stocks, to me, they are not undervalued, but they may look like they're undervalued. I will never know if they're undervalued unless I do the valuation, the in-depth analysis. But most people think that, oh, they buy low PE stocks. Now, the PE, that is, even if I show you that the low PE stocks underperform, it doesn't mean that value investing doesn't work. It means that all low PE stocks, as a, as a total, they don't do well, but some of them, if you analyze them, you may still find other value stocks do well. So the PE is a function of interest rates. When rates go down, the PE goes up. And you can show this mathematically. So when rates go down to zero, most PEs go up. And if you try to focus on very low PE stocks, these tend to be really bad stocks. So those who look at very low PE stocks in this environment tend to actually focus on very bad stocks. Or value traps, as we call them. Yeah. And the other thing is that the low interest rate interacts with the growth rate. The PE is a function of both, of interest rates and growth rate. Low PE stocks have low expectations about growth. High PE stocks have high expectations about growth. So when you have zero interest rates, these high, gro- these high growth opportunities in the future, when you present value them, they look really big right now. And that's why people tend to go into growth stocks, because in this environment, they have an advantage. Moreover, the last 10, 15 years, we've been in a low growth environment. So people tend to go to growth because there is some growth potential, whereas for the value stocks, there's no growth potential, so they, they tend to avoid growth stocks. But interest rates and growth are cyclical. Interest rates will not go down forever. They go up and down over the business cycle. The same with growth. Growth goes up and down depending on the business cycle. Once the cycle of interest rates are to go up, inflation will go up, interest will go up, growth will go up. This will hurt growth stocks, will give advantage to value stocks who also by definition tend to be very pessimistic about the stocks. So as soon as the economy starts to look better, the outlook will look a bit better than what the pessimists think is going to be. And this will, will benefit actually value stocks. So that's why I feel it's a cyclical thing, not a secular thing. Well, it may, definitely makes sense that in a low interest rate environment, as you were saying, you discount cash flows. 
especially with growth companies further out there, suddenly worth a lot more. But you also mentioned that the market could become over-optimistic in their growth assumptions and on growth companies. So this would serve kind of as a double whammy at the same time. Does the market's current Fatuation with growth resemble any past market peaks you can think of, I don't, maybe the nifty 50 in the early 70s or the pre-tech bust in 1999? I think probably not the 1999 because in 1999, there were many companies with a long business model, inappropriate business model and addressing inappropriate customer needs. This is not what's happening right now. Right now, you've got companies with a good, with a good business model. In fact, you have companies that I call the killer category companies. The winner takes all. The companies with network effects that will not disappear. But the question is, are projections about these companies over-optimistic? I mean, I don't know if they're overpriced in this low zero interest rate environment, but the projections are very, very over-optimistic about these companies. If we keep projecting this kind of growth rates, these companies will be the only companies left. And I don't think the government will allow this. You may remember back in the 90s, the government tries to break up Microsoft. It took them you know, 10 years in court cases. Eventually, they didn't break up Microsoft, but all this commotion and court cases slowed down the growth of Microsoft. So I think the current environment resembles more the Nifty 50. These companies in the 60s, they grew very much. They built high expectations about the future in an environment, again, of low interest rate. When the 70s, rates went up and growth slowed down, Prices correct a lot. And this is what I'm afraid may happen now once interest rates start to go up. And I think they will go up. Right now, the consensus is that rates will remain low forever. I beg to differ. Maybe until the pandemic is over, rates will, be, will remain low. But after the pandemic is over, I think what we're going to see is higher inflation, higher interest rates, and this environment will benefit more value stocks. I did a study, have a graph, but you don't show pictures all. So if you look at value versus growth, and I'm talking about, again, low P versus high P. I'm not talking about doing all the steps and valuing things. Low versus high P stocks. If you plot the difference from 1960 to now, there are two distinct periods where growth outperformed value by a lot. This is the last 10 years and the 10 years between 67 and 74. And if you look at these two very long periods of underperformance for value stocks, in both periods, inflation was low and interests were low. Now, if you believe that rates will remain low forever, then value will not do well from now on. That's a pessimist view. But on the other hand, if you look, you go back in the 60s and see the 10 years that value underperformed, the following 30 years were value was doing better than growth. So the pessimistic view is if you believe rates will remain low, value is dead. But if you believe that after 10 years of underperformance, the next 30 years are value years, then you have a more optimistic view. So if we take history as a guide and we say, oh, look, historically, when value underperformed for 10 years, the remaining 30 years were really very good for value stocks. I'm sure that's music to the ears of all active managers and especially value managers. So I certainly hope that comes true. Now, can you talk a bit about the vaccine news in early November when Pfizer made its announcement and what the implications might be? I mean, so we've seen a big rally in value stocks since then. Yeah, but you see what happened? The vaccine changed expectations about growth, about inflation, about interest rates. Whereas before, without the vaccine, people were thinking, 
were all dead and no inflation, no in high interest rates, no growth. And that environment was benefiting the growth stocks. The announcement of the vaccine changed people's expectations. What do you think is going to happen when this vaccine has fixed the problem? The pent-up demand will explode consumer growth and inflation. What do you think people will do when the pandemic is over? They're going to all rush to restaurants. They're going to rush to movies. So maybe now is the best time to start a restaurant <laughs> because you're going to have huge growth in a few months. That is, the pandemic killed, I don't know how many thousand restaurant business. So the marginal business are out of business. So the remaining, or if you start a new restaurant right now, is going to give you explosive growth maybe 10 months from now. I never thought about that, but yeah, thanks. That's a wonderful theme to look into. Vacations, airplanes. I'm thinking of, because I, I travel every year, I go to Europe and give election seminars. And I'm thinking, you know, should I arrange my bookings from now? Because if I wait, maybe I will not be able to find a seat. Because everybody, will, last year, no one took a vacation. I think next year, the whole world will be going on vacation. Any last words of wisdom for young value investors out there who perhaps started value investing at a time that might not be conducive to value investors, but to have their whole lives ahead of them? Believe in value investing. And this is what I tell people, don't get depressed. Stay the course. Stay the course. Especially for professionals, they've got to train the clients to look long-term that in the long run, value investing is viable. For example, look at Peter Candle. Peter Candle, for 15 years, he underperformed. But if you look at his whole life, he superiorly outperformed. So value investing works in the long run. That's why I tell everybody, professionals, to stay the course. The growth of ETFs and robo-advisors, they will give many more opportunities for mispricing because these people don't determine value. They just take what we determine. And the more of their activity, the more possibilities of undervaluation. But you've got to do value investing properly. Value investing is not buying low PE stocks. I know many value investors, they'll say, oh, if the low PE, if the PE is 10, I'll buy. No, you don't want to buy if PE is 10. You want to buy if you determine the intrinsic value and you find the stock is way below the intrinsic value, but what we refer to as the margin of safety. Most value investors are self-taught. So you got to get some formal training. And I hope with my book, we have more opportunities for universities to offer formal training in value investing. At this point, it's only Columbia and Ivy that offers value, offers value investing training in a more professional and structured way. For the young people, I think I mentioned this before, what is your temperament? What is your character? And try to gravitate towards something that is consistent with your character. If you can train yourself to develop the characteristics of a value investor, Believe in it and follow this as a, as a career. It's not easy. Not many people succeed in controlling their emotions. But if you can do this and train yourself to do this, then you'll be the happiest person in the world. And on that note, thank you very much, Dr. Thanasakos. A real pleasure having you on the show. And I'll be posting all the relevant links in the show notes. If you would like to learn more about Dr. George Thanasakos and the Ben Graham Center, please visit bengraminvesting.ca where you will also have access to resources such as past presentations by famous value investors, a listing of upcoming events, and value investing tools. I will be obtaining a copy of Value Investing from Theory to Practice when it is released in the spring of 2021, and I look forward to dedicating an episode to it after I've had a chance to read it in its entirety. Well, that brings us to the end of the first season, and we will be returning in a few months. In the meantime, if you have any questions or feedback, email 
podcast at starvinecapital.com. And if you would like to be alerted of when the second season begins, please sign up for our newsletter at starvinecapital.com slash podcast. 